Welcome, everybody. I'm Tricia Scribner, and I'm filling in for Heidi, and I'm so excited to be with you guys here again today. The last time I was with you, a few weeks ago, um, I was really struggling with something, and that was the fact that it was possible that our only child who lives here in Charlotte, North Carolina, would be moving. In fact, I was near tears part of the time. You know the, the situation where you, you have to keep going, but you're struggling with something when you walk into the room. And so that was me. We had bought a piece of land, a perfect piece of land, eight acres. I call it a little piece of heaven on earth. It's just right down um, Hickory Ridge Road. It was between us and our daughter and son-in-law and four grandchildren. Now, for those of you who know me, you know that our oldest daughter lives in California, where we moved from, and she has four grandchildren there. So we travel like Beth out to California. We talk about our California families. And also, our youngest daughter is uh, Emily Peters, married to Aaron, and they're doing the Boston Church plan. So to get to them, we either drive 13 to 14 hours or we fly. Okay, so my, my joy was that, okay, Sarah and Andrew, they'll be here until our old age. They'll take care of us. <laughs> you could tell I'm very old because I'm starting to be worried about that. And so they'll be here and the four boys. We built a tree house out on the acre, eight acres of land. It's only five minutes from our house, close to Harrisburg, everything we need. We love this land. And you have to understand, I was an Air Force kid. Went to nine different schools growing up. Lived in a trailer park a good bit of the time. Then my father, when he retired it, when I was age 12, went into the ministry, and we continued to move every two to three years uh, among small churches where he pastored. So I'm, I'm ready to put down roots somewhere and dig my feet into the soil. And we lived in Louisiana, Randy and I, when we first got married, on 70 acres of family land of his family, and we had to bush hog our yard, so to speak. So, you know, since then, I, I, I miss the land. I used to tease about the land in California where we were in Fresno, which we loved, but that you could cut the lawns with pinking shears because it was, they were so small, you know, and everything's mapped out in little squares. So you, I'm telling you all this to tell you what this land means to me, what this land means to me. We built a small garage on it. My husband likes muscle cars, so we've gotten that built. We have no house or any place to stay, but we got a place for the cars. So <laughs> our priorities are right, at least. And he built that tree house, and the boys come over. We have bought them galoshes, shoes to walk around in the mud. We've got a four-wheeler out there. And on weekends, we go out there and work on the land, and we love it. Every vision I have of that land has my four grandbabies in it ages seven to one, and they're moving. They're moving. Now, we, we consoled ourselves. They're not dead. They're only moving near Atlanta, Georgia. They're no, none of them has a terminal illness. Some of you say, you know, that should be the least of your worries, Tricia. Yes, it's absolutely true, but that doesn't change my grief. It still hurts. I'm still sad because everything I see in that land has Braden and Grayson and Will and Drew be in it. And so I tend to cry. For the first two weeks of realizing they were moving, I literally sobbed quite a bit. Now it's better. Now it's that dull ache, you know, of sadness. And yet rejoicing. Don't get me wrong. I don't, I don't think this is a bad thing. It'll be good for their family unit to be away from us. Uh, to figure out things on their own. We had to move to California. It was tough. It was the, one of the best things. I think it's good for all of us. Our schedule has become their schedule, or their schedule has become our schedule. That'll be good. I won't be taking care of children every day. I'll have more freedom to look at ministry and all of that. But one thing I realized in this is that I've been clinging a little too tightly to earthly things. And that's what James wants to talk about today. And so he preached to me all week long. Pastor Clint goes through this every week. You get preached to all week long, and then you have to present it to others, what you're learning. And I'll do my best to do that. And so I titled this, um, I don't remember what our author titled this as, um, but I titled it, Making Jesus Lord of My Treasures and Tomorrows. We're going to look at James chapter 4, verses 13 through 5, verse 6. 
Now, you'll remember the last time that I was here that I talked to you about inductive Bible study, which is what you're doing. And what I said was there are three basic steps, and we remember that those steps are observation, where we look at the details. Interpretation, we ask certain questions about meaning. And then, and only then, do we do application to our lives. We have to know what it meant to them before we can understand what it means and apply it to us. So that's our goal today. So I'm trying a new format a little bit, so you'll bear with me as I get used to, to doing this, but I'm hoping that it will be helpful to us to see the scripture laid out like this. You have it in front of you, and so we're just going to work on that first page first, talking about observations and interpretation of this passage, and then we'll go to the outline. Now, I just want to say to the before you and to the Lord, we've already prayed, but I want to acknowledge James chapter 1, that the Lord told us through James that if we lack wisdom, that we are to ask him for wisdom and do so trusting he is able and willing to grant us wisdom. That is not only knowledge, but knowing how to live out that knowledge in our daily lives. So we're in covenant together today agreeing with and submitting ourselves to the authority of the word, saying to the Lord, yes, Lord, I believe you when you say that you will grant me wisdom on these matters in such a way that it changes how I live my day as I walk out of here in regards to my treasures and my tomorrows. So we're agreeing together with that in humility before the Lord. Now let's look at the passage. I'll just read it aloud. These are some things I want you to look for while I'm reading. You can remember how you can jot all over this first outline page or the scripture structure. And remember that I laid it out how I see this scripture structurally. And when we do what's called a structural diagram, it helps us to see patterns that's why I do it. Now, this is my structural diagram, and there's some things that aren't perfect about it, I know. But I did it this way because this is how I see the thoughts connecting. And I'll show you some of those as we go through it. I want you, though, to look for things like the main ideas. What do you think are the main points he's trying to say? Because remember, we said that every passage is about something. It's about something. There's something, a principle, uh, something about the personality of God, um, or something practical in every passage. And that's what we want to pick up on by our observation. Themes, words, important words, repeated words and concepts, and words that we don't understand that we need to ask questions about. Look at contrast and comparison. Is there something he's contrasting this with this and placing them opposite each other to show how they're different? Are there word pictures and are there conditionals? If you do this, this will happen or this happened because you did this. Those are the things you're to look for and you can make yourself notes. Let's begin. Come now, you who say, tomorrow, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves 
your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now stay with that first page. We'll look at the outline of the passage in a moment. And let's just make some notes on it. If you were to look just at the big picture before we dig into the details, what two main topics do you see being addressed here? And this is the time for audience participation. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry? Plans. And I call that tomorrow. It's just because I was trying to be cute and alliterate, right? So our plans. So we have the top section in Chapter 4 is about our, um, is about our tomorrows. Let me see if I can get this to. Okay. So I'm going to call this our treasures. Oops, no. Eraser. So the top section is about our tomorrows or our plans. What about the bottom section? Say that a little bit louder. Yeah, our riches, and I call that our treasures. Well, let me see if I can. So this section is about our treasures down here. All right. Now, what about some words that are repeated or that are hard to understand? Or boast. Okay, boast and boasting. Yeah, all similar kind of all similar kind of things. Corroded. Okay. Do you notice that he begins both sections with come now? Remember, do you see both of those? You have it in verse 13. And then verse 1 of chapter 5. So you may wonder why you put these two passages together. But he, re he repeats, come now, come now. And then he says, behold. This is almost like an Old Testament prophet announcing an oracle of judgment. His, his demeanor, his tone is very much like the Old Testament prophets. Come now, you who say. Come now, you rich. He's calling them to court. And he's about to present the evidence against them. Now, what other things do you see in terms of words? Any other words that uh, are important or repeated? Say it again. Rich and riches. Good. So we see profit. Yes. Treasure. Yeah. Treasure. Cry. Oh, okay. Okay. Riches. Very good. What about any words that uh, are, are any sections that are contrasted? Yeah. So notice that there there are contrasts uh, between the. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go into this land and do this. And instead, he says, you ought to say, 
if the Lord wills. You see that contrast? Also, they're saying today or tomorrow we're going to do this, yet their life is a vapor. That's another contrast. So these are contrasts. All right? What would you see as a central principle? And central is a key word because in position it's kind of central too. Okay. Pick the word, that's a good point. Pick the words straight off of the page. Yeah, look here. Whoever knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, to him it is sin, you see? Sitting right in the middle of this passage. Because he's telling them what's wrong, how to correct the wrong and do it right. And if you don't, you sin against Almighty God. All right. What about word pictures? Is there a word picture in here? Rotting riches, moth-eaten garments. Yes. Rotting riches, moth-eaten garments. What else? Say it again. Corroded silver and gold. Corroded silver and gold. Okay. Fattened your hearts, very good. And there's one up here about what your life is. Yeah, that's a metaphor. You are a mist. Now, it's interesting, and you may remember from James chapter 2, that he says this about the rich people earlier. He says the rich are going to vanish. So he's repeating and expanding upon a metaphor he's already used in, uh, in chapter 2. Okay, <clears throat> now, fattened your hearts, you said. In the day of slaughter, very good. All right, now, what about if-then? Are there any if-then conditionals? If the Lord wills, we will. Yeah, if the Lord wills. You ought to say, if the Lord wills, okay, we'll do this or that. Um, it really there is, is there, there, that is an if, but it's not a conditional in the sense of if you do this, this is going to happen. But this is how we should have our attitude. If the Lord wills, then we will do that. Okay, now, any questions interpretation-wise that are raised that you have on your mind? That's my biggest question about this passage. Uh, it's very closely related to what you're saying. Exactly who, he's talking, who is he talking to here? Because after all, who is the audience to whom James is writing? Supposedly believers. What kind of believers? Jewish believers. Dispersion. Okay. And it may have been an early dispersion, not yet at the time of maybe Paul's dispersion, but that occurred even under Saul of Tarsus where people fled Jerusalem. The Christians fled Jerusalem due to his horrendous persecution. And so there was dispersion more localized, you know. So at any rate, they're moving out. So he's talking really to the Jewish Christians as a general audience. Also, these Jewish Christians are persecuted Christians. So who are the rich that he's saying that to? Is he saying it to people in the Jewish audience who are part of that body of believers? Um, so this is a question we'll want to deal with in, in just a few minutes, how, how we, we might address that, because does that apply directly to the, the audience? Or, and if not, why is he saying it there? Good question. Anything else? Exactly. Like, why would 
Yes, and so then why is he giving that to this body of believers if it's not directly applicable to them? And so we'll, we'll talk about that in just a moment. Good thinking. Now, what you've begun to realize is that you're at home studying this, and you're already beginning. You, you've already gone a long way on your own Bible study. Okay? You don't need just someone to come up here and teach you. The preaching of the word is necessary. The teaching of the word is critically important. Don't get me wrong. But you, as a believer in Christ, can do a lot of, of learning in your own private study just based on what you've already done and presented here in class. You've gone a long way on understanding and asking the right questions about the passage to get the most out of it for your life as well. Now let's go just tear your pages apart and you can keep your scripture in front of you with your notes on it. And now we'll go to the outline as we begin to plug in what we've learned about the scripture. And I've divided it into um, a couple of sections. The tomorrow section, which is the end of chapter 4, and then the treasures section, which is the beginning of chapter 5. And you may wish to transfer some of these notes straight into your Bible, into the margins. You can also use sticky notes. And then I recommended to you last time the U version, Y-O-U version Bible app. I listened to James as much as I could listen in 15 minutes on the way here from that. Just plugged it in and listened to the audio version. For mothers that have little ones, that's going to be critical for you to absorb the word in a variety of ways when you don't feel that you have the energy or the time to sit down and do a long Bible study. I think that Bible study is critically important, but whenever you haven't slept the night before, you've been up, you're exhausted, there are other ways that you can get the word into your life, and the audio version is one of those. It's a free app, okay? Now, an important contrast. I wanted to draw this contrast between how the foolish plan their future and how God intends us to plan our future. Notice what they say. Whoever this is who is being addressed and called to court for judgment says, um, today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town. Not only will we go, not only do we have our tomorrow planned, but we're going to spend how long? A year. This person is arrogant enough to say, I've got my long-range plans all, all sorted out. Maybe it's the person who bought eight acres of land and said, my grandchildren are going to grow up here in this treehouse and take care of me in my old age, okay? Maybe, maybe the person said that. And he, said, he says he's going to spend a year there, but this person, these persons also have a certain plan in mind. What are they going to do when they get there? They're going to do business, and they're going to make money. They're going to make money. All right, so they've got it all planned out. We're going to go. Now, in and of itself, making long-range plans, we know is not uh, against the Lord's will to make long-range plans. It's how we go about it that's the issue because they've done it apart from God. Also, when our plans get changed, how do we respond? That's the, that tells us. If we're, doing it, if we're making the long-range plans under the submission of, of the Lord or whether we've got our agenda, it doesn't work out, and so we're crushed. We begin to be angry with God. We turn away from Him because He's not doing it like we thought He ought to do it in our lives. Okay, so that's foolishness. Why is planning without God foolish? Because life is what? It's a vapor. Perhaps we don't have a vapor this morning. We got actual rain. But uh, in Fresno, where we lived before we moved here, there were times when the early morning fog settled in the valley like a blanket. But then by noon, it would just be burned off. It was gone. The sun's shining, and, and it's bright. And you never even knew that the mist was there. This is what our lives are here on earth. So what is, what is he trying to tell us about our priorities? If this life is a mist, then what? What can you infer from that? Yeah. Now, that's tough to do. 
to place our priorities on the eternal kingdom mentally, re, but it, and it requires continual refocusing, doesn't it? Because we're being pulled and pulled by the day-to-day, -day, the soccer games, the agenda, the responsibilities, the finances. We're being pulled, pulled. The world, this is what we call the world. It's like got tentacles grabbing and pulling us toward our thinking, pulling our thinking toward all the things that are temporal constantly. Now, we need to be responsible and good citizens in how we caretake all the temporal things. That is obedient to the Lord, right? So we're not to pretend like, like we're a monk, move away from all temporal things as though we can get away from this and enter the heavenly kingdom now, because then we're so heavenly minded, we're no earthly good, as it is said in uh, way back days my daughter would say. So we want to be temporal. We have our feet planted here. We're to be good citizens while we're here, good caretakers of the earth, tutor our children unto the Lord, take care of our families financially. All those things are, are critically important, but they can become all-consuming to the extent that we lose sight of what the Lord has planned for uh, our eternal future and that everything we're doing in the temporal now is to be planting and thinking toward that eternal future. And we have to remind ourselves that this eternal future is not this nebulous uh, vapor. You see, we tend to treat the vapor as though it's the only reality. When when actually the heavenly vision is not the vapor, it's a reality as well to which we are going. And we are to aspire to that while we walk through this earth. So that's a, a, a tightrope, isn't it? Doesn't it feel like a tightrope that we're walking between keeping our vision kingdom-minded? But whenever we think about our plans for tomorrow and our treasures, how we deal with these temporal things tells us how our mindset is, whether it's eternally focused. Aaron and Emily, our daughter and son-in-law, have taught us a lot about that. And we uh, have learned from them of their humility and true willingness to say, this, this is important, but it's, it's not my priority. It's, it means something to me. Um, for instance, I was talking to her this past weekend, and there was something, uh, a little boy named Malachi, he's 11 months old. He had fetal alcohol syndrome. They're considering adopting him as well. They're moving forward. Kiana's not fully adopted, but we're hoping that will work out. And, and we got to go see Malachi. He has a feeding tube. He was born at 27.5 weeks, a pound and a half, I think. You're talking about a very unusual situation. Babies don't usually, even with all of our technology, don't live when they're born at 27.5 weeks. And so we went and we met Malachi. And, and when I said to her, what about the, apart, the, uh, the plan, the hope that you had in moving to this building uh, so that you would have a three-bedroom? And she was busy preparing something for some ministry activity, and she said to me, Mom, you know, I don't know. I don't know if that's going to work out or not. She said, but I, I just can't worry about that. And she just she does the reset very quickly. It's not that she doesn't have the worries, but she does the reset, the reorientation very quickly. And she's, I can't worry about that. That's truly the Lord's domain because I have no control over it. So she just moves forward with her baking what she's got to bake now. Okay, and I see that in my daughter, and I, I learned something from my daughter. And it has ended up that the Lord has allowed them, instead of moving the place that they were going to move to, which ended up being full of lead, paint, and all of that. If you know Boston, everything is pretty old. So there's a lot of lead paint. They're going to get to move upstairs to a three-bedroom. that They just don't come open in this apartment complex. They do not come open. Because I remember praying in December, Lord, if you want an apartment as we were sitting in a three-bedroom apartment of their friends where they were fellowshipping upstairs, and she said they don't come open. I said, well, Lord, if you want a Colburn apartment with three-bedroom to open up, I know that you will do this. And it ends up being that the Lord opened up apartment upstairs next to their best friends who also are fostering a child and are part of the church plant. God, God knows God knows. And so this is how we need to think about our tomorrows, that God intends us to submit our plans and dreams to him and not to cling so tightly to the plan. So when we think it's all worked out, suddenly we're saying, Lord, I see what we're doing, and now I hold on to that plan. No, I hold on to him. I reorient my thinking. No, Lord, I'm going to trust in you. 
you have my future, both temporal and eternal, and I am to adapt to that as I go along. I think about my friends who've ended up with di serious diagnoses that interrupt your life. You know, you have this plan, this agenda, and then you get sick. And it ends up consuming your life, just trying, it becomes a full-time job trying to get well or to survive. How do we respond to those plans? And I have many godly women who have guided me on how to go about this in a way that pleases the Lord and actually builds our character. Because, see, the Lord doesn't want us just comfortable. My little land, my little plans, all the boys there, happy, healthy, playing, this little fantasy image. Sometimes we become attached to the image in our minds in a way that does nothing to make us more Christ-like. And just acknowledging that is a step forward. Okay, now what does God say about planning without regard for him? He says it is an evil. Notice in this passage that he says all such boasting is evil. Your boast, you boast in your arrogance, and this boasting is evil. Now, what do we mean by evil? Uh, the great early Christian, Augustine or Augustine, talked about evil as a lack, a lack of good. I explained it to my, my high school students this way. I say, suppose you have a fence there, okay? You have a fence, a wood fence, and you have a hole in it. The hole is what evil is. It's the lack of something that's supposed to be there, a perfection, a maturity, a completeness. It's a lack. That's what evil is. We're missing the mark. We're in absolute rebellion against God. And it's a hole. It's missing something in our lives that should be there. So when we boast and we focus on the te temporal, that is an evil in the sense if we are lacking the good that is the designed plan of God regarding our attitudes about our tomorrows. We've replaced it with something that is really a hole. And he goes on later to talk about rusted riches, the alloy in metals that make them usable for humans, like the gold and all of that. While the gold is pure, the alloys that make the metal usable and malleable and for jewelry that is something that does rust. So it's like the rust in a car. So if you take a car and you take away the rust, you still have a car. So if you have a car and you take away the evil, you still have the car. But if you have the rust and you take away the car, there is nothing. So evil is something that can only occur as a part of a good thing, a corruption of a good thing. And the reason I'm saying this is that sometimes we have this idea of evil floating around out there or that evil and good are two eternally warring principles. They're not. Evil is simply corruption of the, the design, the perfection that God had planned. It's a brokenness. And as we are all corrupted, as we are all corrupted through sin, then we tend toward, in this human nature, we tend to think in terms that are, are very fleshly, and we have to reorient ourselves to that which is biblical and uh, remind ourselves of God's plan, his purpose. To think uh, we direct our own lives is an evil. So if we have been thinking this, then we can begin to change our thinking. We can ask ourselves, once you write James's compelling challenge from verse 15, whoever knows the right thing to do, and fails to do it for him it is sin. Since we want to realign ourselves, what we want to do is ask ourselves, if we were to completely submit our future plans, the plans for the house, the bigger house that you want to get, the new car, the plans for the, your children's education, uh, the plans for buying land or building, the plans for your job and where you want to go in your career. If we were to submit all that, gather it all up and say, Lord, as you will, whatever you will, I'm there. What would have to change? Because right now in your mind, you should be thinking of something that's precious to you that you need to kind of realign. Lord, here this is well. My health, 
my children's safety, oh, their well-being, their education, the bigger house, the better car. Here it is, Lord. As you will, I'm there. Now, let's move to the next section. Come now. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries. The question was raised, which I found to be the most pressing question for me as well, is to whom is he writing here? It seems as though if he's writing this letter to the Jews of the dispersion who are actually suffering, that this doesn't directly apply to them. He may even be talking about the rich who are persecuting them. Now, think about this. Why would it be if that is the case? Now, it could be also the case that, that there could be rich within the congregation who are not believers. You know, we, have, we don't ever assume that everyone's a believer who joins with us to, uh, in, in worship services, say. But let's just imagine it's to the rich who have been persecuting them. Because remember, early on, prior to this, he says, listen, whenever someone comes into your assembly... And one's wearing a gold ring, and one is in tattered clothes. And you tell the one with the gold ring, sit up here, and the one with the tattered clothes, sit down there. You become judges of the law. You're doing an evil thing. Aren't the rich the ones who persecute you and haul you into court? So he's repeating this here. Now he's saying, come now, you rich. How would this be helpful to the persecuted Christians to read this? Come now, you who rich. They're being called to court before God. Hope. It also reminds us not to take revenge. Right? Because why? Because the true judge is going to judge all. But it may also remind these people who are at present persecuted or suffering not to fall in the same trap. Because sometimes there are seasons of abundance and seasons of barrenness. And when the seasons of abundance come, we tend to become like those who think that way. We begin to trust in, well, I've got the good uh, um, bank account. I've got the good savings. I've got, and we begin to trust those things for our safety and our uh, assurance about the future. So James calls account to those who trust in their wealth, and he does it like an Old Testament prophet. Now, does God want us to be poor? Or, to say it another way, does God hate riches? You're saying no? Okay. Can you think of some biblical evidence that shows us that riches per se are not um, being rich per se is not necessarily a bad thing. Are there any biblical examples? Well, the word doesn't say money is the root of all evil. It says the love. Of exactly. Money is the root of all evil. Can you think of any rich people in the scripture? Solomon. You have to speak up really loudly. Solomon. Solomon. Now, Solomon's riches ended up turning him, though. Or, or they didn't turn him. He turned his heart toward them and became polluted. But the riches itself, the Lord had given him. And at the beginning, he dedicated them back to the Lord through the building of the temple. Job, Job quite wealthy, quite wealthy. Abraham, Abraham. Now, what we see in Abraham, you remember when he and Lot are standing on the hill trying to divide up the land? And what does Abraham say to Lot? You choose. So we see here that God blesses sometimes materially people even in the scripture. And as you say, the issue becomes how you respond to those riches. And we might, should be thankful when the Lord doesn't over, um, over money us. I don't know how to say it. I don't want to say bless because, because that sounds as though the best blessing of the Lord is a material thing and it's simply not. But, but when he doesn't give us too much because we can't handle it and we turn our hearts as Solomon did... Uh, though he started out well. But we have to admit, all of us in this room, we're by far richer than the vast majority of any person in most what we used to call third world countries, hurting countries. 
who are hungry and, and saying, Lord, I, I really am hungry. I, it's hard for me to concentrate on anything when I'm not sure when we'll eat. So we live in a very rich country. Now, look at what he says here. He says, come now, you who rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are going to come upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Now, riches have rotted, gold is, your gold is getting corroded. Do you remember anywhere else where he talks about moth-eaten clothes and corroded metal? Not James, but the Lord, Matthew. What does the Lord say? Moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart will be also. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So we have to ask ourselves, what is our greatest treasure? Because when I think of treasure, I think of material things. Right? So he, in, James has a lot of affinity correlation with the book of Matthew. And he is actually referring back to something the Lord himself said about laying up treasures here on earth where moth and rust corrupt. They get spoiled. Have you noticed this about stuff you buy, whether it's the house or the new car? It is amazing that first week. And by the sixth month, you're repairing something every time. Sometimes by the second week, you're fixing, you're repairing, you're trying to keep up with stuff. And I've had a friend say to me, he had a bunch of keys. He said, every single key on your key ring is a responsibility. And doesn't it seem sometimes to get too heavy? Just take caring of all of our stuff. So I build a bigger house to put more of my stuff in. And then I fill that up with stuff and realize I need a bigger house because I need a place to put my stuff in. And then you get to be 60 and you start throwing it all away. Going, what was I thinking collecting this? It's too much trouble. It's too much trouble. I'm too exhausted. I want my life simple. So we gain, 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 and then we downsize as we deteriorate physically. And we realize that this is what's important to me and, and this is not. Now, granted, when you have children, we start gaining as we have children and we have to take care of them and provide for them. And that takes more space. But it's, it's also a mindset that we have in America. We always need to build better things to hold more of our stuff. And then we realize the stuff doesn't fit because we filled up that space and we want something bigger. So it's a worthwhile thing to step back and start cleaning out and rethinking Rethinking that, uh, what you can, can live with, uh, uh, what you should live with, not just what you can live with. What should I be living with and having responsibility for? What should I get rid of so it doesn't distract me from the Lord's purposes in my life and become all-consuming? It's one reason so far we haven't ever bought a condo or something. It's just it's one more responsibility of something to take care of. Now... The rich young ruler comes to Jesus, and he says, um, you know, what do I need to do to have eternal life? And the Lord says to him in Luke, he says, well, you need to follow these commandments. Uh, it's of the Ten Commandments. They're all relationship commandments with men. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not um, uh, bear false witness. He says, I've done all of these since my youth. He said, but you still lack one thing. He said, go and sell all that you have to the poor and come follow me. Because up until this time, Jesus had not told him about the first three commandments. He did not bring to him, thou shalt have no other gods before me. So in this command to go sell everything, now he's taken him to his, his allegiance to the Lord God Almighty. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Why? Because he knows the God for this young man is his wealth. So he tests him on the one thing that is distracting him. Now, the Lord doesn't say riches are bad. But throughout the scripture, we do see a principle that it's hard to be rich and be holy. <laughs> it's hard. Why? Because we are so easily, we're so easily distracted 
by the material possessions and the things that we have. And so we need to constantly monitor ourselves on our attitude toward them and ask ourselves, what treasure are we laying up in heaven? Maybe we decide we're not having our children in every single sport but only one because our family time is more important and we haven't been able to tutor them and raise them up in the way of the Lord because we're so overbooked and overexhausted. We may make that decision. That may not be the, I'm not saying that decision is the one you need to make. I'm saying those are the things that we need to evaluate in our lives. And what happens to the one who trusts in riches? The wealth that they could have used to bless others wastes away in a vault and corrodes. Now my husband loves muscle cars, so we drive around the country Inevitably, he'll see something under a, a porch or in a garage, and it's an old, rusted car. And on occasion, we've actually driven up and asked if the guy would like to sell it. Uh, some of you have husbands like that. Anyway, I stay in the car. And so <laughs> he asks if he'll sell it, and the guy won't sell it. Invariably, the guy won't sell it. And guess what my husband says? He's going to let that car sit there and rot because we'll drive by five years later and it's still sitting in the same place the guy who says he was going to do something with it has left it there and it's rusting away to the point it can't even be used it can't be restored nothing this is what he's talking about riches rust and you could have used that wealth you could have used it to 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 bring uh the gospel to the nations. You could have used it to uh, bring the poor into your life, the messy struggle with relationships with people that are hurting, and minister to them through your wealth. Instead, you let it sit there and rot. And its rotting, its corrosion, actually bears witness to your evil, your evil attitude. It serves as evidence against you, the very fact that it's sitting there collecting dust or corroding. The corroded valuable metals God cites as evidences of their selfishness and utter disregard for those in need, which they could have helped. It's all rusted. It's all rotted. What are the consequences for those who earn profit at the expense of others? They will be judged. Now... He talks here about wage earn, uh, owners or employers defrauding employees. And so a lot of us skip over this passage because we say, I'm not really an employer. When you go to a restaurant, you have a server serve you. A long time ago when I was growing up, when you went to the gas station, you had a gas station attendant fill your gas, you know. Can you think of some other areas that people serve you? The cashier at Walmart? We have many people who serve us, the people who, if you ever get to get your nails done or your hair cut, how do we treat them? Are we, when we're going to, to, to do those things, keeping an eternal perspective? I've said that getting your hair done, your nails done, or a pedicure is wonderful because you have a reverse captive audience. They are stuck with you. And some of my greatest sharing opportunities of Christ have been in those situations. Uh, one Buddhist young lady was doing my uh, toenails one time, and because she had a different accent, I asked her, and I said, um, so where are you from? And she told me, and I asked her, so what is your religion there? What is your, what is your faith? And she said, Buddhism is all the same. I said, I'm Christian, and she said, all the same, all the same. I said. Oh, so you worship Jesus as God also. She said, no, no, no. I said, not all the same. And there was a Christian woman, obviously sitting behind her because she winked at me, so I knew she was praying for me. <laughs> now, that's as far as I got with that young lady. But I, I did share the gospel very in a sentence or two. We believe that Jesus died and he forgives all our sins and pays for them because we all know we've done wrong with God. And, but... She, if she walked away from there understanding that there's a difference, that's a start. And so we have these opportunities. And if we, if we are not, I'm doing this, not him. I'm sorry. I, why, I did my notes. They're all looking at you when they should be going, you, Tricia. They all saw me jump. <laughs> I'm sorry. I forget it's there. 
There are consequences for those who earn their profit at the expense of others or when we take advantage of people who serve us in some way. There are two perspectives. The rich who are reading this are called to repentance. The poor, who uh, may be Christians in this case, the suffering ones, have assurance by reading this. It's hope. Judgment will come. Uh, Vengeance is the Lord's, and it teaches us to be faithful in the middle of abuse, to be faithful to the Lord uh, whenever we're mistreated by an employer. Who is the advocate of the mistreated laborer? God himself. Their cries do reach God Almighty. Judgment is going to come. Now, the thing is, we want judgment for everybody else, but we don't want judgment. We want mercy for me, but judgment for Hitler. We need to realize that we're not standing over in a separate court from Hitler. We're right there beside him in our rebellion against God. I'm not saying we're as bad as we could be. We've not done the worst things we possibly could, but I'm saying we are thoroughly corrupted in in the ways that we think in our own natural state. What is the result of living with an attitude of self-indulgence? The delicacies with which we fill ourselves to the full for the life of ease actually fatten us up for the day of judgment. We're like the fatted calf who is fed the best grain and extra portions with great enjoyment, totally unaware that he is being fattened for destruction. And we don't want that to be us. So ask ourselves, is there any way I mistreat those or take advantage of those who provide services to me? What are some ways I display self-gratification? I want it, and I want it now. And self-indulgence. This will make me happy if only I have this. For the Lord has something to say to us in that our treasures are where our heart is. So it's a good time for us to ask, Lord, where is my heart's treasure? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have called us to account in how we handle our plans for tomorrow and the treasures physically that you've given us. We want to obey you in all things. So we ask, Lord, humbly, that just during this week you bring to mind areas in which you want to do a work of cleansing and reorient us toward the eternal. Thank you that you will grant us wisdom. You've promised it to us. We desire it. We submit ourselves to you, Lord. In the name of Jesus, for the sake of his kingdom, amen. Thank you, ladies.